0: Reason obeys itself, and ignorance submits to whatever is dictated to it. Thomas Paine This podcast concerns matters that share three general criteria. One, they have the potential to cause us great harm. Two, they're often misunderstood by the public. And three, they may be less likely to destroy us if we understand them a little better. Any opinions expressed here are mine. I bring these concerns to your attention in the hope that you'll be motivated to further your understanding through personal research and through honest, open discussion with your peers. Death by Ignorance doesn't contain profanity. It does, however, present some content that may be disturbing to some listeners. The material is intended for a mature audience and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Death by Ignorance, Episode 7 – Climate Change Denial – The Who, What, How and Why When it comes to a discussion of climate change denial, we should bear in mind that there are two distinct areas in which ignorance may lead us to faulty conclusions – The first of these is a fundamental lack of understanding concerning the science behind climate change, its causes, and its predictable outcomes. The second concerns our failure to understand the motives behind the words and actions of prominent climate change deniers. Consider the following, there exists a strong scientific consensus that anthropogenic carbon dioxide-mediated global warming from the burning of fossil fuels is real and it's causing accelerated climate change. This consensus has been arrived at by careful, intensive observation and rigorous scientific experimentation. Remember how science works. Each new study seeks to demonstrate that any, any conclusions of prior work were wrong. A consensus develops as more and more of these studies fail to invalidate the earlier work. It's a gradual and continuous process that provides us with our best approximation of physical reality. Number two, the fossil fuel industry and numerous other entities that are reliant on it stand to potentially lose much of their wealth and power if the planet abandons oil in favor of cleaner, cheaper, and safer sources of energy. 3. Big oil or big coal cannot fight science with science. Because fighting science with science is actually science, and that's being done already. So they have to find another way to protect their interests. And 4. The fossil fuel industry has responded to this internal crisis by investing countless billions of dollars in global campaigns of disinformation designed to spread confusion and uncertainty in the public and delay any definitive action that could hurt their bottom line. I want to take these issues in reverse order. We'll begin by looking at the deniers themselves, who they are, what they claim to believe, who is paying them and so on. When we have a better understanding of the people and organizations behind climate change denial, we'll look at some of the specific claims that these people are making and consider counter-arguments to each. Before I introduce you to the villains in this global con, let's take a step back and consider a few broader categories of climate change deniers. Whenever we encounter new information, it's a really good idea to consider the source of that information. What is motivating a group or individual to take a particular stand? Just because a person may make money from espousing a particular belief doesn't automatically invalidate their position, and this is an important distinction. What we must do is evaluate the credibility of a given source and weigh our assessment of the information accordingly. Let me give you a quick example. You want to buy a used car and you find the right vehicle at a local used car place. You've read a few articles about the car and are a little bit concerned about issues that some owners have experienced with the transmission. So you ask the salesman. Have you checked out the transmission and did you find any issues? He responds that the transmission is in perfect condition. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Drives like a dream. As a precaution, you take the car to a friend of yours, who also happens to be an auto mechanic, who works exclusively on this brand of car, and he's a transmission specialist. You know the guy very well. He was your best man and he's actually married to your wife's sister. He doesn't want to charge you anything to look at the car, but he drives it around the block, and when he gets back to the garage, he puts it up on a lift, gives it a thorough inspection. He checks the transmission fluid and tells you, well, there appears to be a bunch of tiny metal fragments in the transmission fluid, and when I drove the car, it was making a terrible grinding noise going between second and third gear. I wouldn't buy this car. The transmission's probably going to fail, and it's going to cost you at least $5,000 to replace it. What do you do? The salesman who told you the car was in perfect condition was not a mechanic. He owed you no allegiance, and he stands to make $1,000 from selling you the car. The mechanic is a close friend. He knows about transmissions. He has no financial interest in your decision. And he told you not to buy the car. So you have two different opinions to uh, sort out. Either one could be correct. One source, however, is a bit more credible than the other. Consider the source. The same thing goes for climate change denial. In real life... Where we're constantly dealing with far more complex systems, your appraisal of the credibility of new information needs to be more careful and more nuanced. Fortunately, in science we demand that scientist authors reveal any potential conflicts of interest before legitimate peer-reviewed journals will even consider publishing their work. And any potential conflicts are clearly stated in the paper's preamble anyway. Of course, some scientists may lie. A case in point, Andrew Wakefield and his vaccination causes autism scam. But when they do, they're invariably caught and their work is retracted and their career is usually over. This then is a good baseline from which to evaluate contrarian claims it should go without saying that any claim refuting a scientifically tested hypothesis should, at the very least, conform to this same basic standard of credibility. It's the flip side of the philosophical position about a truth claim that lacks evidence can also be discarded without evidence. Now, with all that in mind, Let's take a look at the main categories of climate change deniers. Obviously, there's a ton of overlap between these arbitrary groups, and I'm presenting them just to give you an idea of where people's motives may lie. Category number one, the bald-faced liars. This, I'm afraid to say, is the fossil fuel industry. This category includes not just the big oil executives, but their investors, their consultants, their customers, and anyone else that stands to create wealth from their involvement with this industry. The people in this category deny climate change in order to protect their business interests. They probably don't believe any of the garbage that's being disseminated by their paid stooges. The industry probably knows more about the impact of carbon dioxide on our climate and environment than any other group. But knowing the truth and speaking the truth are two very different things. The oil industry is the used car salesman from earlier. It's a bit more complicated than it may seem on the surface. And that's because the greater the motivation to adopt and embrace an alternative reality, the more passionate the adherence to its tenets. Or put another way, when the stakes are really high like this, these people will actually start to believe the lies they're telling. We should also factor in... The the decision-makers in these industries believe that their wealth and power is going to protect them personally from the inevitable catastrophe that they're causing. This type of thinking is completely consistent with the worldview of many climate change-denying industry leaders. Category number two, the mercenary sycophants, government and lawmakers. These are the individuals that are acting out of pure, unadulterated greed, whether that is for money or power or both. These are the paid stooges of the fossil fuel industry. They or their re-election campaigns receive donations, millions of dollars in some cases, in exchange for their advocacy. Some of these lawmakers are probably incapable of grasping the science of climate change, Which is in itself a terrifying fact, but it may explain, at least in part, their readiness to accept the arguments of the climate change deniers. But most, I suspect, have a pretty good understanding of the scientific consensus and also of the probable impact of climate change, but they just choose to ignore it in exchange for wealth and power. These are the men and women that we have, theoretically, chosen to speak truth to power and protect the interests of their fellow Americans. No other group bears a greater responsibility for understanding these issues and finding the truth. And that's what makes the words and actions of some of these trusted figures so abhorrent and indefensible. Ignorance of the truth is not a defense. It's their duty to know the truth. In other denier categories, the pervasive influence of social media echo chambers may mitigate some individual responsibility for understanding the truth, but not in this one. This is nothing but government corruption of course, it's exactly the same dynamic we saw playing out every day in relation to gun control, factory farming, racism, you name it. The ultra-wealthy special interests have hijacked our democracy and used their puppet politicians to write laws and determine policies beneficial to them. Policies that our ignoramus in chief has no compunction whatsoever about signing into law. And this government is a special case having taken deceit, corruption and willful ignorance to an entirely new level. As an aside, there are several individuals running for the highest office in the land who've spoken out about climate change and made statements about how they intend to address the problem. It's going to be really illuminating to see how their campaigns are financed and what effect that may or may not have on their positions. But because the real issues here are more about money and influence, regardless of political party affiliation, I don't have a whole lot of hope that we're going to see much change in this group. Category number three, the Armageddon adherents. This group consists primarily of the far-right evangelicals and other associated religious zealots. The anti-scientific worldview of this large and powerful group of climate change deniers all but guarantees their membership will fall in line with conspiracy theorists of any and all types. You'll see, too, that this category overlaps almost all the other categories, but nevertheless represents a special case. Not only are deniers in this group constitutionally incapable of distinguishing between fact and fiction, but they're also cheerleaders for the end times. They exhibit a peculiar variety of motivated reasoning, choosing to believe that climate change is a hoax, while wishing fervently that it'll turn out to be true. Anything. Literally anything that hastens the coming apocalypse is a fundamentally good thing for this group. For a group whose highest moral aspiration is to believe unquestioningly in a reality for which there's absolutely no evidence, it must come as second nature for them not to believe in something for which there is a mountain of entirely reliable evidence. I have to believe that there are some individuals in this category who've attained a level of education and, and and experience sufficient to evaluate and understand the climate change evidence objectively. Are these men and women tormented by cognitive dissonance? A few, I sincerely hope, may find the courage to reevaluate the substance of their beliefs and question the goodness of hastening the extermination of billions of souls just so that they can get raptured a little bit earlier than planned? The majority, I fear, must simply choose to disregard the inconvenient evidence, as they so often do. Either way, this group and their delusional thinking terrifies me, which should give them some pleasure, I'm sure. Category number four, the well-intentioned fatalists. This group and the one that follows are the people that I'm actually talking to here. You might not get all the science, you aren't a climatologist after all, but you are present enough to know what a consensus is. You've looked at the evidence and you judge the sources to be both independent and reliable. This is how it's supposed to work. We know when we need more information, and we know how to evaluate the trustworthiness of that information. We have no doubt that the temperatures in our atmosphere and subsurface oceans have risen sharply and are on an accelerating upward trend. You also understand how this warming has been caused by an accumulation of excess carbon in the, in the atmosphere, and that this excess carbon load is the ongoing result of burning fossil fuels. You even get that this man-made global warming is having a serious detrimental impact on our climate, causing droughts, melting polar land ice, and leading to catastrophic weather events at an alarming rate. You actually believe in climate change, but you don't, or maybe you can't quite believe that this is your problem. This is a subtle distinction. It's this knowing there's a problem, believing it's not your problem, that gets you into this category. Not believing that we share a responsibility to stop this train before it kills us all is a type of climate change denial. And the end point is no different than if you believe climate change was caused by leprechauns. Our brains don't like inconsistencies. When we know there's a problem, but we fail to take action to mitigate the damage, we feel uncomfortable. We have two choices. We can either commit to be part of the solution, or we have to restructure our understanding of the problem. And that leads to thoughts like, well, you know, maybe they have a point, or uh, I might have overreacted at all that consensus stuff. And whew, that's a relief. Don't fall into the trap of believing there is something noble about declaring yourself a permanent climate change agnostic. That's just lazy, and it's dishonest. After all, there's no difference in the actions of a denier and an agnostic. Agnosticism is functional denial. If you aren't sure, get more information until you are sure. Category number five. The just plain ignorant. This is a group we've spoken much about in other contexts. This is the single most important group for us to understand because it's with this group of climate change deniers that our hopes have to rest. We can never change the minds of the greedy, corrupt, delusional and the evil. But surely we can create opportunities to enlighten the unenlightened. Or can we? The biggest obstacle is without question the internet and social media, and I know I'm always banging on about this particular problem, but it's something we can't afford to ignore. Social media. There must be a more accurate term for it. Parasitic influencer, antisocial mind controller, opinionator, stupidifier, It's wormed its way into all our societies, where it feeds to our minds a steady stream of truth, half-truth, and utter falsehood. Whatever the algorithm thinks will keep you on the app a little longer, sell you one more widget, or nudge your opinion one way or another. It exerts its control so subtly, smelling like a rose, looking like man's best friend. We've talked before about the echo chamber of social media, the filtered and carefully curated news feed that tells us exactly what we want to hear and only what we want to hear until our understanding of the world becomes one-sided and set in concrete. Is it even fair for us to expect a person who relies solely on social media to be persuaded to listen to a long-form interview or read a balanced essay. Obviously, such an effort must begin with a complete overhaul of our atrocious education infrastructure. We have to educate our young people to value nuance, to look for truth in open, honest debate, to read both sides of a story with an open mind and an empathetic heart. But even as I say it out loud, I can hear the chuckles of the rich and powerful who are perfectly happy with the status quo. Thank you very much. Ignorant people are fearful, suspicious and superstitious people. They're so much easier to control, so much easier to exploit and ignore. I have no doubt that any gains will be slow and painful. I also have no doubt that there are men and women, natural leaders, teachers, parents, role models, who share my sense of urgency and passion for change. We need to identify and support these people, elect them to public office and get their voices of reason heard. And in the meantime, we need to set examples in our own families and our own communities We must help people learn how to think critically, not what to think, one at a time if necessary. And does it even matter if we think? What difference can one enlightened mind make in the grand scheme of things? Well, yes, it does matter. It matters hugely. And the difference becomes crystal clear when one enlightened mind passes a succinct accurate explanation of the science to a friend, a relative, or a co-worker. And it is crucially important that we know the enemy, to understand how they think and what they say. There are a handful of climate change deniers whose positions of power and influence coupled with either their astonishing stupidity or profound dishonesty make them especially dangerous to this planet. This is the rogues' gallery of climate change denial. Most of these characters I'm going to introduce you to are members of organizations like the Heartland Institute, the Cato Institute, CFACT, that's the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow, Uh, and Americans for Prosperity. Each of these organizations is funded by donations from the fossil fuel industry, and in some cases the donated funds have been specifically earmarked for the activities of climate change deniers. The goal of these organizations is to muddy the waters, create distractions and confuse the public. They have to resort to this approach because there is no scientific data to support all their spurious claims. Most of their operatives are attorneys, not climate scientists. So, lacking a sound scientific basis on which to refute the claims of climate scientists, these organizations must rely on cobbled together mishmash of pseudoscience misdirection, legalese, cherry pick data, and ad hominem attacks to create as much uncertainty and confusion as possible. There is only time to make a brief introduction, but I urge you to read further into the activities of these malignant individuals. My sources are all linked in the the show notes for this episode, so that's a good place to start. First up, the villain-in-chief, Senator James Inhofe, Republican, Oklahoma. This man is the chairman of the Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works, the fox guarding the hen house if ever there was one. He's on record for taking donations of more than $2 million from the fossil fuel industry, and that's what we know of. He's described the Environmental Protection Agency as the Gestapo. I could have chosen any one of hundreds of published quotes to illustrate this man's position, but I settled on this one. Man-made global warming is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Wow. I can't help thinking that James Inhofe is in fact the greatest hoax. Aside from being a bought and paid for fossil fuel industry stooge, he also fits into the end times cheerleader and just plain ignorant categories. I can picture this arch-villain sitting in front of the fire, coal fire, of course, after another long day of lying to his constituents, stroking his white pussy and drooling over his contribution to climate change. Mark Morana, whose name, interestingly, is an anagram of Mark, a moron, he is the executive director of ClimateDepot.com and the communications director for CFACT. And CFACT, by the way, is a self-proclaimed anti-science think tank that doesn't actually do any thinking, as far as I can tell, but does cash checks from its benefactors, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and the rest of them. All you really need to know about this man is, is that he's a former employee and protege of one Senator James Inhofe, and he learned how to lie to the public on TV from none other than rush past the Perkodan Limbaugh. Chris Horner. This guy is a senior fellow of the Energy and Environmental Legal Institute. He's also a senior fellow of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Organizations, by the way, that by some incredible coincidence also get their money from the fossil fuel industry, Alpha Natural Resources, uh, an American coal producer, among others. You can spend a full day on YouTube just watching this lawyer demonstrating over and over again how little he understands science and how little he understands most other things, too, But he has one quote that really stands out from the others. And I quote, Pluto's warm-up is a reminder that no matter where you are, climate happens. It always has, it always will, with or without SUVs. And it should remind us to continue taking with an ever-increasing grain of salt these claims that your car acts as a weather machine end quote. He should get an award for this quote. In some ways, statements like this give me hope. But then I remember that half the country finds this nonsense to be pretty compelling argument for burning more coal. Myron Ebel. The name says it all. Director of Energy and Global Warming Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's the Director of Freedom Action and Chairman of the Cooler Heads Coalition. Well, this guy must be the real brains behind climate change denial. We should probably hear him out. Um, No. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy and a master's degree in political theory. And that's it. He has no scientific background and spends most of his time attacking real climate scientists and trying to discredit their work. But of course, he'd still have to rely on these sleazy tactics, even if he did have a shred of scientific knowledge. Because, as we've said, there is no legitimate peer-reviewed science with which to refute the consensus. It's that simple. So at the end of the day, Myron is just another unqualified blowhard, an oil industry lobbyist and fossil fuel lackey. If you have any doubt about this man's unsuitability to hold a position responsible for determining global warming policy, consider this. He was Trump's number one pick to lead the EPA's transition team. That's all you need to know. Steve Milloy. He's the Director of External Policy and Strategy at Murray Energy Corporation, which is the largest remaining coal producer in the U.S. He works for Fox News and uses this platform to confuse the public with the usual non-scientific balderdash and poppycock. But lest you think Mr. Malloy is just a misguided good guy who found himself in need of work and fell in with the wrong crowd, consider this. He is one of the monsters that spent the first part of his career convincing the public that smoking isn't that bad for you. Much of this time was spent working with R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company, while he was at the Cato Institute, working to undermine the scientific consensus on the dangers of cigarette smoking. Now, I understand he's decided to focus on projects that will endanger everyone, not just smokers. And he's thrown his lot in with the coal industry. The following words actually came in this order from Steve Malloy's mouth. I'm all for the coal industry, the fossil fuel industry. Wealth is what makes people happy, not pristine air, which they'll never get. Close quote. Having sat at the bedside of many wealthy, dying lung cancer patients, gasping for air, pristine or not, I can tell you that this vile imbecile could not be more perfectly, more utterly wrong. Who else? Patrick Michaels. Patrick Michaels is the director of the Center for the Study of Science at the fossil fuel-funded Cato Institute. 40% of his funding is from the oil industry, surprise, surprise, he's also a regular on Fox News. Pat is also a big tobacco minion and has used his skills to misinform and confuse the public on the dangers of smoking. Now he focuses his talents on muddying the waters for the fossil fuel industry. One of his most scholarly and profound quotes regarding how to address global warming is as follows, quote, Probably the best solution is to do nothing, because doing nothing is doing something. You think so, Pat? By the way, this kind of statement is the stock in trade of science deniers the world over. For science to respond to this kind of absurd non-statement suggests it has legitimacy, that it just doesn't deserve but this is all they have to throw out there. If they had any science to support their claims, they'd use it. Next up is one Bjorn Lomberg. He is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, and forgive me for assuming that the Copenhagen in question is the chewing tobacco product and not the Danish city. Bjorn is a political scientist, not an actual scientist, and he's a journalist. I'm really only mentioning him because he represents a different strain of climate skeptic. His position is that, yes, global warming is real, and yes, it's causing climate change. Sounds good so far. But he goes off the tracks right after that, stating that these are both super awesome things and that we need more of both as soon as possible. This is certainly an odd position, as you would think if he was smart enough to accurately evaluate the science behind the first two points, he'd be all in on the third one, too. I don't know if the fossil fuel industry funds this particular organization, but I bet he gets invited to all the Christmas parties. Matt Ridley He's another fringe denier. He's a British journalist and a former politician who gets funded by the coal industry and spends his time trying to delegitimize renewable energy measures while cheerleading for the environmentally catastrophic fracking industry. He, by the way, like Bjorn, believes in both global warming and climate change. He just doesn't think they're dangerous. There are two leading climate change deniers that deserve a special mention, as both of them are actually scientists. The first is called Fred Singer. He's a former space scientist and a government scientific administrator. His credentials are fairly impressive. He's done a great deal of uh, legitimate work in atmospheric science over the decades, and that makes it quite difficult to square the circle when it comes to his climate change denial position. But one troubling hint is that he's been employed by numerous oil companies over the years. Another is that he has been an outspoken denier of the risks associated with secondhand smoke, another scientific consensus. He calls himself a climate skeptic and has openly criticized the arguments of the more mainstream deniers. He bases his denial on the belief that the climate change consensus has been invented by radical environmental activists that have political aspirations. Like Lomborg and Ridley, this guy doesn't deny global warming. Uh, in fact. He kind of likes the idea of global warming because uh, he has said that that would mean the north of England can start making wine again, you know, like they did a thousand years ago. Anyway, I don't find any of his opinions particularly compelling, and he relies heavily on a lot of long discredited claims as the basis for many of his arguments. He's been funded by the Heartland Institute, which is, of course, another fossil fuel-backed climate change denial outfit. And on balance, I find neither the man nor his opinions very credible. And in that, I'm in good company. The other scientist denier that I want to mention is Roy Spencer. He is a self-proclaimed climatologist. He's actually a weatherman. He has a degree in meteorology. And he lives in the state of Alabama in the U.S., He's an advisor to a fundamentalist evangelical Christian group called the Cornwall Alliance, which believes that environmentalism, and I quote from him, one of the greatest threats to society and the church today. What can I say? Magic trumps science every time. These are just a few representative members of the climate denial community. There are many, many others. Included in their number are some 500 scientists, and that is a fairly significant number until you look at the number of scientists on the other side of this equation, and we'll be getting to that in just a minute. But some of these people have considerable influence, and together they've become a relatively well-organized, very well-funded anti-science community. It should be clear to most rational men and women that the forces aligned against the scientific consensus are simply doing the bidding of an industry that will stop at nothing to protect its wealth and power. I don't doubt that there are some true fanatics among them, people who mistrust science on principle people who see a higher calling for their activism or people whose fillings have been talking to them about the climate change hoax for decades, but it doesn't really change anything. Whether those who would see this planet destroyed are doing so for profit or out of some sincere belief, it doesn't matter. They're still putting the rest of us in jeopardy. The Inhoffs of the world will never stop squawking. Until the river of cash is cut off, at least. And the zealots will never stop, period. We really can't do anything to change the way these misguided, greedy weaklings jump when their masters call. But what about the voters and the spenders in your own circle of acquaintance? People that aren't getting payoffs or bribes from big oil. They're the people we need to be engaging with, the people that stand to lose the most from a radically changing climate. These are the people that control who is elected to power, in theory at least, I know, depressing. Uh, And these are the people that can choose where and how to spend their earnings, on oil or on renewable energy. Call me naive, but I believe it's the ordinary citizens that when they're properly aligned have the power to force changes in policy, to demand action to protect our people and our planet. These are the minds that we need to change. It's with our neighbours and our friends that we have to invest time in answering questions and dispelling myths and undoing the damage that's been done. In just a minute, I'm going to lay out a dozen or so of the most common claims that climate change deniers make, and offer some suggestions of how you can address them if these come up in your conversations. But please understand that these are just a few representative examples of the arguments used. To be really well prepared to address all the possible attacks on reason, you'll need to arm yourself with a more comprehensive understanding of the science, and there is a lot of it, but the links I put in the show notes should give you a good place to start. A few words on the consensus and what we mean by that. Consensus is actually not a scientific term. It just refers to the fact that the majority of qualified climate scientists, people who are publishing in the area in peer-reviewed journals, agree on the facts laid out in the consensus statement. This does not mean and should not be interpreted as meaning that All scientists agree on every point. That is definitely not the case. Climate science is incredibly complex and there are a lot of disagreements on various details, some of them bordering on minutiae, but the consensus statement summarizes the big facts that the vast majority of scientists do agree on. And to refresh your memory, The consensus is that observations throughout the world make it clear that climate change is occurring and rigorous scientific research demonstrates that the greenhouse gases emitted by human activities are the primary driver. It is those facts in that statement that the majority of scientists agree upon. And that group includes every major scientific authority actively conducting research in the discipline of climate science. So here are 11 of the most common claims made by professional science deniers and repeated by members of the public, whose party affiliations, group memberships, or social media content have put them in a position of susceptibility to persuasion by this kind of fossil fuel industry propaganda. Number one, it's cold outside, so no global warming. This could also be known as the argument from Trump, the Inhofe snowball defense, or just the argument from idiocy. This is the claim that cold weather disproves global warming. And to give you just a little insight into the brains that are running our country, I want to tell you a quick story. I wouldn't have believed this had I not seen it on television myself, but one day Senator Inhofe, the the Senator Inhofe, came to work with a snowball so that he could show Congress that it was cold outside. I must have been show-and-tell day at the Capitol, and he brought a snowball to disprove global warming. Hard to believe, but unfortunately true. So what is the best way to answer the it's cold outside, so no global warming denial claim? Probably the best place to start is by explaining the difference between weather and climate. So, weather describes a particular set of local atmospheric conditions in a specific place at a specific time. It's raining outside. That is a weather observation. Now, climate refers to all of the weather conditions that occur over a larger area, say North America, and on a longer time scale, say a year. By necessity, it's expressed using averages and trends. So the average snowfall on the North American continent in 2001 showed a 2% increase over the prior year's average, would be an observation of climate. Now, I made those numbers up, so don't go look it up. The fact that it snowed outside Inhofe's house that day Provides us with one single datum from which we can draw absolutely no generalizations or conclusions about anything. Least of all the climate, unless you're Inhofe, I suppose. So when confronted with this argument, just explain the difference between weather and climate, emphasizing that you can't infer anything about the climate from one day's weather. Number two. Temperatures were mostly flat for much of the last 15 years, so no global warming. This is a perennial favorite for deniers, and the statement is partially correct, which is mostly why I think they like it so much. The conclusion they draw from it, on the other hand, is complete rubbish. It's called cherry picking, and it's where you only look at those points of data that support your desired conclusion. You ignore the rest of it. We don't do that in science. We look at all the data and we draw our conclusions from all that data. If you toss a coin twice and it comes up heads twice, and it's a fair coin and it's a fair toss, would you conclude that it will always land on heads? No, of course you wouldn't. So you toss it a thousand times or you toss it a million times and find a relatively even split between the heads and the tails. Then you infer from this data that the first two years must have been a coincidence, and not a very spectacular one. Climate, though, is infinitely more complex than just tossing a coin, but the same general principles apply. And that's exactly what is shown when you look at long-term climate data. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to call the 15-year pause a coincidence per se. I'm pretty confident that the scientific process is going to find a better explanation for that period. Uh, And that's the way science is. Information is added as experiments are completed and hypotheses are confirmed. So when you're confronted with this denial point, just explain what cherry picking is and point out that the scientific consensus on climate change is based on Temperature trends ever since reliable records have been kept. So we're not just looking at that small period, we're looking at the whole enchilada. Three, even the scientists can't agree. This is kind of like the cherry-picking example. Uh, It is, in fact, true that 3% of the scientists that meet the definition for scientist, which is accepted by the consensus, and that is, by the way, scientists that are climate scientists working in the relevant field and publishing their work in peer-reviewed journals, and 3% of them don't agree with the consensus. So what? That means that 97% of the group do agree with the consensus. We won't get into the specifics of what the 3% do or don't believe, or even how their research was funded, because it just doesn't matter. Remember the car scenario from earlier? It's like taking the car to a hundred transmission specialists instead of just one. If ninety-seven of them say, don't buy this car, and three of them say, go for it, would you buy it? That is exactly, literally what this argument is saying. The logic is precisely the same. 97% of scientists in the field say, we're going to destroy our planet. And 3% say, don't worry about it. Are you going to go along with the 3% when doing nothing is as crazy a decision as buying that car? By the way, this is what a consensus is, (laughs) in case you were wondering. So, if you do find yourself trying to talk somebody down from this ledge, try not to call them an idiot and walk them through the car analogy. Though why we even need an analogy to explain something, this self-evident really escapes me. Yes, on second thoughts, go ahead and call them an idiot. Number four. Well, those scientists can't even predict the weather accurately. Obviously, they can't say what the climate's going to do. So this is about the same issue we saw with Inhofe's snowball. Climate and weather are not the same. They're spelled differently. That should be the first clue. This argument is the same as saying, (laughs) you can't even make an omelette. How can you play chess? Predicting weather is meteorology. It relies on interpreting real-time atmospheric data to make near-term predictions about future conditions. It's difficult to do and well-nigh impossible to do accurately. That's why they almost never say it's definitely going to rain. They say there's a 90% chance of rain just in case it doesn't. Climate predictions, while still incredibly complicated, Are predicting the behavior of an entire system based on long-term data from the past and from present observation. But the scientific consensus doesn't include any specific predictions about the climate. The data that we do have allows climate scientists to create sophisticated models of what could be expected to happen under certain combinations of conditions. What the consensus does predict is that continued release of excess carbon into the atmosphere will result in increased and even accelerated global warming. When you talk to someone holding this position, it's worth pointing out to them the difference between climate change and global warming. These terms are used interchangeably by many deniers, possibly just to confuse, but they're very different things. Global warming is simply the rising temperatures that have been observed and correlated with the rising greenhouse gas burden in the atmosphere. Climate change, which can be caused by many factors, volcanic activity, sun temperature fluctuations, and global warming from greenhouse gases, is a change in the long-term cumulative atmospheric condition patterns across the globe. So, one example of climate change could be decreasing equatorial precipitation and one effect of that change could be displacement of indigenous peoples from the drought affected areas. So, when we're faced with this particular question, it's best to just explain the difference between weather prediction and climate prediction. Number five. There's evidence that the amount of ice in the Antarctic is actually increasing. This is actually a very reasonable question to ask because the observations actually do show an increase in the amount of ice around the South Pole or around Antarctica. So on first appraisal, this accurate observation could lead somebody to conclude that global warming may not actually be happening. To address this concern, we've got to take a closer look at the science. There are two kinds of polar ice. There is land ice and sea ice. Land ice is frozen precipitation. It's freshwater. It comes from rain and snow. It has a lot less salinity than salt water, and it forms the polar ice shelf. Sea ice, on the other hand, is frozen seawater. It's heavier than the freshwater land ice. What we're observing at the South Pole is the rapid melting of the polar ice shelf due to the warming of the landmass and the warming of the subsurface oceans. And as this land ice melts and slides into the sea, it's forced to the surface because of its lower density and it refreezes in the colder surface ocean water. So yes, the ice around the Antarctic landmass is increasing but it's only because of the rapidly melting land ice. So, in the observed ice pack is actually a bad sign that actually reinforces the consensus on global warming. This, by the way, is why we need scientists and not lawyers doing climate science. Number six. Well, I agree that the planet's warming up, but it's not because of us. It's the sun and volcanoes. This is another point that's particularly appealing to non-scientists, at least on its surface. The truth is a bit more nuanced. Volcanic activity and solar radiation certainly do contribute to the planetary temperature. But their contribution is relatively stable and quite predictable. The global temperatures are rising in spite of the fact that our sun has actually cooled slightly over the last 40 years. The contribution of volcanic activity during this time has been minimal. The only variable that can actually be correlated with the rising temperatures is the rising concentration of excess greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The scientific consensus states that this has been conclusively demonstrated to be a causal relationship. In other words, the rising concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is the direct cause of global warming. Clouds or water vapor, methane, exhaled CO2, are all part of our atmosphere's intricate balance. The only additional, unnatural factor that can explain the observations is the 40 billion metric tons of CO2 that we're adding to this delicate balance. And in case all this wasn't terrifying enough, it's going to take more than 100 years for this excess carbon to be re into the planet. And only then a steady balance will return. And that's if we stop dumping CO2 into the atmosphere completely. And right now, some damage has already been done, and that's a bad thing. But adding to the burden, knowing what we know now, That's just suicide. Number seven, plants need CO2. Plants are good. More plants are good. More CO2 is fantastic. This is a profoundly silly argument that demonstrates how little the deniers know about the carbon cycle and environmental balance. Balance is everything. Systems don't like any factor to get out of balance. Our atmosphere contains just enough oxygen to support most kinds of life. 26% of our air is oxygen. Much more than that becomes toxic to humans and other animals, much less, and we die. The CO2 in our atmosphere is also supposed to be in balance. I know this is oversimplifying, but we basically make as much CO2 as our plants use. We're in a massively complex system that over eons has settled into the, this harmonious balance that we see now. It changes very, very slowly over periods of thousands of years, and life adapts to these gradual changes, but you can't expect adaptation to happen overnight. It doesn't work like that. The CO2 that we're pumping into the atmosphere was long ago removed from this delicate cycle. It was sequestered in materials like coal and oil, and that's where it's supposed to stay. By digging it up and burning it, we're throwing the system badly out of balance, and like I mentioned in the previous example, it'll take hundreds of years for the carbon to be recaptured by the planet and taken out of circulation. But we don't have that kind of time, and we can make it worse with every day we fail to act. No, our plants won't thank us for the extra CO2. They're in as much peril as we are from the resulting global warming. Plants won't survive in an arid desert or under rising seawater. Number eight. We humans make carbon dioxide too. Maybe that's the problem. No, it isn't. Refer to the previous explanation. Our CO2 production is part of the carbon cycle and part of the delicate balance that sustains our lives on the planet. What we breathe out, the plants breathe in. And in turn, they make the oxygen that we breathe in. Again, it's oversimplifying, but we maintain a steady balance. Humans aren't adding to the excess carbon load by breathing. We're doing that by burning oil and releasing the carbon that has been safely locked in the transformed corpses of every living thing that came before us. Number 9. What's the big deal? We're only talking about a couple of degrees. This idea comes from failing to understand the difference between weather and climate again. Sure, a couple of degrees rise or fall in today's temperature, it won't even be noticed. But we're talking about something entirely different. We're talking about an average rise of the same magnitude and that would be literally the difference between ice remaining frozen and ice melting. Those parts of the planet that are frozen, but only just, will melt when the temperature rises, even a fraction of a degree. The planet's temperature has already risen by 6 tenths of a degree Celsius since 1880. That's one and a half degrees Fahrenheit. The projections are calling for a rise of three to four degrees centigrade by 2100. Such a rise would be utterly catastrophic to our planet, causing rapidly rising sea levels, unprecedented drought conditions, destruction of coastal settlements, and increasingly extreme weather events. So the answer to this query from a denier is yes, a global temperature of 2 degrees centigrade would be catastrophic. Number 10. Cutting carbon emissions would decimate the economy. This position is really the crux of the matter for the fossil fuel industry. When they make this argument, they're really saying that measures to reduce carbon emissions will decimate their economy. But even that outcome will be largely determined by the industry's ability to reinvent itself anyway. But this argument is fundamentally flawed. First, they have the numbers dead wrong. The European Dara Group, an NGO that's been studying this very question, estimates that the transition to solar wind and other renewable energy sources will actually stimulate the economy, expanding the gross domestic product by $155 billion a year. Secondly, the claim that decarbonizing electricity will destroy the economy fails to take into account that the climate changes that we're already experiencing are responsible for the devastating economic problems that we're seeing all over the planet. Look at the Bahamas from last week, the failing farms in drought-stricken California, or the crops being lost to torrential rain events in the Midwest. What we are doing now... Is decimating the economy. Estimates on the impact of the climate changes that have already occurred suggest that these changes are causing 400,000 deaths and costing $1.2 trillion every year. The decarbonizing of electricity will save $1.8 trillion over the next 20 years. The economics of energy production. Are really complicated and far beyond the scope of this discussion but I have put some reference articles and they are cited uh, in the show notes. Number 11, it's already too late to do anything. It certainly is too late to do anything about the CO2 that's already been pumped into the atmosphere. That will be there for many many years to come. But it's not too late to stop adding to the size of the problem. Every fraction of a degree matters. What we do or what we fail to do will have a direct effect on the quality of life for all humans for centuries to come. We have two priorities to address. We must prepare for the inevitable consequences of the damage that's already been done. The storm that ravaged the Bahamas this week will be back, and it will be bigger. Count on it. And next time, it might not dump most of its energy on a group of offshore islands. Are we ready for that? And secondly, we have to stop adding to the problem. We just have to stop pumping carbon into the atmosphere as if there was no tomorrow, because if we don't, there may well not be. I urge you to become familiar with these and the many other spurious claims of the fossil fuel industry. Arm yourself with the knowledge to push back against the deadly misinformation that's being spread far and wide by the oil industry, its puppets, and their millions of unsuspecting acolytes, one of whom may be your boss or your uncle or your daughter. I've provided some additional resources in the notes accompanying this program and many more examples of the deniers' arguments are available there along with some suggested responses. Please take a minute to look at a few of those. Thanks for listening. Good day.